it's a big one. There's there's two bachelorettes this season. So. Wait, what? Wait, give me a rundown here. How in the world is that going to work? They haven't said, to be honest. So they did this a while ago, and it was awful because they had the men vote on which bachelorette they wanted to stay, which is awful because we're not, we don't want to pit women against each other like that. So they said they're not doing that, um, but we don't really know how it, how it's going to work. So drama, rama, 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 drama, rama, rama, rama. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> This episode of Talking Underwater is brought to you by Central Life Sciences. Protect your facility from midge and filter flies with Strike. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will dissect and discuss the PFAS health advisory limits announced by the U.S. EPA last month, some of the conversations surrounding that news and impacts we're hearing from experts. Additionally, we will briefly touch on the recent announcement of NOAA funding opportunities through the bipartisan infrastructure law. And finally, our interview this month is with Dr. Sarah Young, Professor of Anthropology and Global Health at Northwestern University. I spoke with her about water scarcity and the water insecurity experiences scales, also known as WISE scales. But before that, I will throw it back to Bob to talk about the the PFAS news. Yeah, so I'm actually going to use a quick quote from GM, one of my favorite people in the water industry. She said, get ready to add picograms per liter to your work vocabulary. So shortly after our episode last month, the... EPA announced health advisories for four per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It is likely you will begin having conversations about this with people in the industry if you have not already. So here is the list of them. First is PFOA at 0.004 parts per trillion or four parts per quadrillion and PFOS at 0.02 parts per trillion. Additionally, Gen X has a final HAL of 2000 parts per trillion and PFBS has a final HAL of 10 parts per trillion. Now, the first thing I want to note about these is that these figures are non-regulatory. They are non-enforceable. They are also currently below EPA's ability to detect, and even modern science is not very accurate at testing to this level. Again, parts per quadrillion, four of them for PFOA. That's so, so small. So it's really important to note that. And then the other thing I want to mention here, too, is that EPA's report also noted that 80% of a person's exposure is from sources other than drinking water, which means there is a much bigger conversation that we need to have with people about this when we're talking with the public beyond just the drinking water exposure here, too. So, Katie, I I just wanted to gather some of your thoughts on this as well, because there's quite a bit to unpack with this. And there's a lot of commentary from associations and from engineering firms on what it means for the future of water. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest things I think that both you and I have seen is there's still a lot of questions surrounding it and some clarity that people are looking for. I know that there's 
um, a roadmap that has kind of some of the next steps forward, including, you know, issuing a memo to address PFAS and Clean Water Act permitting, which we talk about the Clean Water Act all the time. Um, so I um, haven't heard a ton of it from the stormwater side, except we know that all, you know, water is connected. So it will impact that sector as well, um, as well as obviously the, the drinking water industry. So. Yeah, so a couple of things I will note. I did sit down on a couple of webinars around this. So one of the first things I'll note is that the EPA is not recommending that you test for or treat to these HAL levels. Again, they're not regulatory and they're not enforceable. So current detection limits and treatment limits are what you're supposed to use. However, that does pose a really weird question when you're talking with the public because the public will see the HAL, the, the health advisory level, and wonder, is my water safe enough to drink since it's below the current detection and treatment level? So even if you're meeting the current standards, the water may still be, quote unquote, contaminated with PFAS to, the, to a degree that it's impacting human health. And that's a very difficult conversation to have. But I think one of the things that the industry should really look at do, talking about is bringing up that 20 to 80% figure, how only 20% of exposure comes from drinking water and 80% comes from elsewhere, whether that's firefighting foam, carpets, clothing, all of that. It's really, really important. And then the other aspect here that I've heard from Water PIO, Mike McGill, who's uh, very prominent in the industry talking about this particular issue is communicate proactively and forcefully. Come out ahead of this. Say, come out and say, this is what we've done in terms of testing, and this is what we know, and this is what we don't know. That way you have a very open and transparent conversation with your customer base on where your water currently stands in relation to these health advisory limits, and you can talk about the roadmap to get you guys on track if you're not, or about the roadmap that's already in play to keep you on track, whether it's like a state regulatory thing or whatever. Um, that being said, I think that that last question, that is my water safe to drink, is such a hard question to answer. And it was asked of EPA in its webinar, and EPA didn't really have a good answer to it either. It, they kind of danced around uh, that question being answered directly. So I think that it's it's a, it puts a lot of pressure on utilities. And I feel for all the utilities who are really struggling with communicating this, because not everyone has communication resources. So. Anyway, I, I see this being a big thing. There's going to be a lot more coming in quarter four this year on PFAS. I believe wastewater should be coming around then. And then in quarter four, 2023, we're supposed to see an actual regulation on it. So there's a lot more to come on PFAS. Stay tuned. We'll keep you up to date. All right. And before we jump into our interview, I did want to share that er earlier this month, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina M. Raimondo announced funding from the $2.96 billion NOAA received through the bipartisan infrastructure law. This uh, funding will go to targeted investments over the next five years, including habitat restoration, coastal resilience, and climate data and services. It will also support three major initiatives, including climate ready coast, climate data and services, and fisheries and protected resources. Noah said in a statement that it will select high impact projects that will incentivize investments in communities, states, and regions that can, quote, drive additional funding to complementary projects, end quote. Noah also said this funding builds on a series of steps the administration has already take, 
taken during June, which was National um, Oceans Month. So um, we're, you know, seeing more and more news about this funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law. So of course, it will take some time for it to really trickle down until we see the the true impacts and the projects that are that are having, but um, it's nice to see some funding, you know, going to NOAA and some climate resilience and coastal resilience that are really struggling right now. So, I'd also like to point to drive additional funding to complementary projects that invest in communities and incentivize investments in those communities. Right, that's mm -hmm. a big talking point with a lot of the funding in general is that. This has to be very community based with the projects. It has to focus on the communities of greatest need. Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing this mentioned here, it's like you can see the connection there. And it also reminded me that in terms of the PFAS thing, there is $1 billion that's currently available for PFAS projects. So it's not like there's not funding out there to help address mm -hmm. this issue either. But again, it's going to have that same focus of the communities of the greatest need need to get the money first. So look into that for your state. It's on a state by state basis. Perfect. Well, without further ado, we will move into our interview. I spoke with Dr. Sarah Young, Professor of Anthropology and Global Health at Northwestern University, and we talked about water scarcity, basically, as their overarching theme. So um, here's that interview. everyone. Welcome to Talking Underwater. I am Katie Johns, and today I am joined by Dr. Sarah Young, Professor of Anthropology and Global Health at Northwestern University. Today we are focusing on water insecurity and scarcity, and we'll be talking about the water insecurity experience sales, also known as WISE scales. So um, Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Of course. So to kind of get us started, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your career path and your work now? Sure. So in some ways, I have no business talking to you about water because I'm <laughs> trained in <laughs> I'm trained in anthropology and public health nutrition. And for the last 20 or so years, what has driven my work is really caring about maternal and child health. Uh, but as it turns out, water is highly relevant to the well-being <laughs> of any woman, child, or man, or animal. And um, so I couldn't help but kind of stumble into the world of water by listening to participants. So um, a million years ago, or maybe more like 12, I had a, a large grant to study the impacts of food insecurity on women and children in the first, what we call the first thousand days. So that's the year prior to delivery and two years postpartum. Okay. And um, with my like nutrition hat on, I was measuring food insecurity, which refers not to overt starvation, but concern about getting enough food of appropriate qualities and doing that reliably. Um, so we were looking at the impacts of food insecurity in the first thousand days. And with my nutrition hat on, we were measuring food insecurity in a validated way that everyone agrees on. And in fact, that that way is uh, data measuring food insecurity are announced every year. So the state of the world's food insecurity report came out yesterday on, on July 7th. So we all agree how food insecurity experiences should be measured. With my anthropology hat on, I wanted to make sure we were measuring stuff that that women cared about, um, that moms and and that you know the topics that affected women and their children. And so we asked women, 
to take pictures, give them digital cameras, take pictures of that which shapes how you feed your infants. And they came back with a whole bunch of pictures of water. And I, I, I wasn't thinking about water. <laughs> and they taught me I should be thinking about water. <laughs> so this beautiful study design, National Institutes of Health had given me, you know, like a million dollars to conduct this study. And I thought, well, we're measuring food insecurity at all these points during pregnancy and postpartum. We should be doing the same for water. My, you know, baby assistant professor herself turned to the literature to say, like, how are these being measured? How, how do we measure water? It turns out we're very good at measuring physical water availability. Mm -hmm. We're also very good at measuring infrastructure. So we can say if people have improved uh, drinking water sources or not and the distance to their house. But what I was learning from talking to these moms was that you can have piped water at your house and it doesn't mean that it's water that you wanna drink or that it's even water you can access. Sure. A lot happens between water being out there and water getting to your house and you having water for all your domestic needs. And so that is when I started thinking about measuring experiences of water. And much of that is informed by what we know about measuring experiences for food. And, and that is a global indicator that we all agree on is important. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, no, that absolutely does. And so now you have these why scales? Can you kind of go into that, you know, what they are, how they work, and what you're using them for? Yeah, happy to do so. So they didn't start out as the why scales. It started out as a, a scale for the study that was in Kenya uh, to, to measure exactly the experiences in Kenya. Um, a, a number of other scholars had developed scales to measure exactly experiences in Ethiopia or experiences in Bolivia or experiences on the Texas US border. But those were quite, you know, unique to those particular settings and I developed something that was unique to Kenya. And but as all of your listeners know, water insecurity is not unique to any part of the world. And what I really thought would be powerful is to develop something that worked everywhere in the same way that the food insecurity experiences scales do. So, um how many years ago now, six or seven years ago now, we brought together scholars, clinicians, practitioners, smart people from around the world to say like, hey, what would be appropriate items for measuring? Like what, what, which kind of questions would work in, in dry places and flooded places and rainy places and places with a lot of infrastructure, places with very little infrastructure? What would work? What are those items that we think are, are candidates for universally for being universally applicable? We identified 32 of those and then we trialed them in, I don't know, 28 sites around the world. And, and these are at that time we had trialed them only in low and middle income countries. And the the target was household level. So asking about household experiences. Okay. No one wants 32 items in a scale if they can have less. Shorter is always better. And so through a process of blood and sweat and tears and statistics, we narrowed it down to uh, 12 items. So the household water and security experiences scale uh, was demonstrated as reliable, equivalent, and valid in low and middle income countries uh, with these 12 items. And that's the HY scale. <clears throat> 
and but we <laughs> we wanted to make sure that we understood how things were working within a household sure. because water is not distributed always equally within a household. Right. So in a partnership with Gallup polls and UNESCO, we uh, we we kind of adapted the HYS items to work at the individual level, which is super interesting because now we can see how things vary by gender, by, by any individual characteristic, by gender, by education, by income. And those um, items, the, the same content, how often have you worried about water? How often have you gone to sleep thirsty? How often have you been unable to wash your body because of problems with water? Um, were then fielded in 30, 31 countries at the, in 2020 and are being fielded in additional countries right now, including in high-income countries like okay. Australia and the United States. So you have the HY scale that measures at the household level mm -hmm. and you have the IYs, individual water and security experiences scale that um, measure at the level of the individual. They take three minutes and they're very straightforward to analyze. It's an open access scale. We, My goal is not to make millions of dollars from this endeavor, but really to help people think differently about measure the measurement of water. Yeah, absolutely. That's, we always talk about, you know, um, World Water Day and imagine a day without water. And there is a quiz out there that maybe you've taken or heard of where you, you know, answer a bunch of questions that tells you how many, you know, gallons of water a day that you end up using. And it's always a lot more than people think. And I think there's a lot of public education to be had about, you know, the water insecurity and water uh, scarcity issue. Certainly. <laughs> so what have you, you know, what are some of the biggest takeaways that you've learned from this so far? Well, kind of to your point, people aren't thinking a lot about water. <laughs> I mean, at, guilty, you know? Right. I mean, for someone who cares about food and nutrition, I was thinking about the food, but we need water for so many things that we're not like food preparation or cleaning right. up your grubby kids after you feed them. <laughs> so um, a, one takeaway is water is really important. And that's kind of like all your listeners knew that before I did. Um, I think another big one is that people feel really comfortable measuring things that they can touch. So measuring cubic meters per capita or looking at infrastructure and seeing and saying like there is or there isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, a, lot of, a lot of scientists across and a lot of practitioners feel a lot less comfortable quantifying people's experiences. Well, they say they're worried, but you know, are they really, or they say this, but does it matter? And, and what I would like to, if there's only one takeaway for your listeners, it's this. experiences matter. If you feel that you don't have enough to eat, you can, we can, we have the data to say, you know, that's a, that you're more likely to be depressed. You're more likely to perform poorly in school. There are a lot of outcomes that are predicted by how you feel about a resource insecurity. And this applies also with water. So if we really want to know what people's what people's water security is, it's not enough to know how many cubic meters per capita there are in that region. It's not enough to know if they have piped water or not. What we need to know is if they feel like they have enough water for all of their household needs. And that's what has been missing from our picture of water insecurity. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what are you doing or what do you think needs to be done to kind of fill that gap in, in that picture of water insecurity? Yeah. So I spent a lot of my time proselytizing the wise scales, the good word of the wise scales. <laughs> um, and it's in to, so sort of socializing the concept of measuring experiences and that in itself is really valuable. And so, you know, drawing the analogy to this, that's how we track food security mm-hmm. in the world is ask about people's experiences with meal size, skipping meals, et cetera. Uh, so socializing the concept, but then also getting the data to back it up. So mm-hmm. I mentioned we've, I think it'll be a total of 43 countries in which we'll have nationally representative data on experiences of water insecurity. And it's fascinating. So just recently in Mexico, we did a a study, nationally representative data, where it showed basically one in three households in in Mexico are water insecure, which is a much, much different picture than what you would get if you looked at the infrastructure that was there. Mm -hmm. Same for Egypt, same for Brazil. You get a very different picture about what's happening in a country when you measure experiences and not infrastructure. What I would like to do is to complete that picture for all 170 countries in the world. And so I'm I'm working hard to raise resources so that we can do these nationally representative estimates across mm-hmm. all countries, just like we do for the State of the World's Food Insecurity Report. The other thing is the other use, so understanding, like kind of socializing the concept of experiences, getting data that are nationally representative. But the third, and I think this is is very easily done, is to use these scales to evaluate impact and needs in whatever project anyone is doing. So before you start a project, I would encourage you know that you get a baseline so you can know <laughs> do you make an impact or not on people's lives. You can count boreholes all day long after they've been built, but if they're not functioning or someone is kind of controlling them or people are excluded from their from accessing them, that's not getting at a picture of water insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so a number of organizations have used this to really understand the impact of the work that they've done. And it's been really insightful. Just as one example, Oxfam used this in a project in in Sierra Leone. And so they measured household water insecurity in comparable villages where they had and hadn't done a governance and small borehole infrastructure project and super insightful. I'm sure. So you mentioned that, you know, you based off what your research, one in three households in Mexico are water insecure. What are the measurements you're looking at to determine that? Are there a certain set of standards or basic measurements you look at? Yes. The Y scales are comprised of 12 items that ask how often have, well, if it's the HYs, it's how often have you or anyone in your household and then had these 12 experiences gone to sleep, thirsty, been unable to wash your hands because of problems with water. And all of these are, all of the, the 12 items are phrased to cover problems with quantity, like too much, too little, sure. as well as quality, because um, we don't measure quality. Like, there's no objective measure of quality, but it's implicit in some of these questions about drinking water. And that's the same for the IY. So it's these 12 experiential items that 12 questions about experiences that take about three minutes to ask. Okay. And so then, you know, based on, you know, how often that would happen is how you're determining if they're in. That's right. So each, um, the responses goes, the responses go from never. So you never are angry about your water situation. So that's scored as a zero. And then there's rarely scored as one, sometimes 
two often are always the score is three. So there are 12 items, 12 times three is 36. Mm -hmm. So the range of the, the scoring is from zero to 36. And we've established a cutoff of 12. Okay. So if someone um, is scores a 12, that's generally what we're using for um, determining prevalence in a population. Okay, gotcha. And so are there, I mean, you mentioned briefly, I think that, you know, you're you're trying to use this research to kind of fill in these gaps here. So what are some efforts you hope, you know, to make other organizations or government officials you want to reach to, to bring this to them? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, in, in a number of ways. So one of the, the, the messages here is that water is multi-sectoral. So we have sometimes like ministries of water care. They automatically care, <laughs> like that's, that's their job. Sure. But what I'm now seeing and what we can now show with data is that water connects to health, like HIV outcomes. Water connects to nutrition. We're seeing it with dietary diversity and duration of breastfeeding. We're able to connect water to across ministries or across agencies mm -hmm. and that's I think a really important message because too much we're siloed I mean I'm a great example of going to do the study and thinking only about nutrition not thinking about water so I'm hopeful that um, national statistics offices are are going to follow the lead of some governments that already have adopted this so Mexico itself has adopted the HY scale and put it in their National Health and Nutrition Survey, which is wonderfully exciting because now we'll have data on water and health at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Duckworth, uh, an Illinois Senator, mm -hmm. has um, written to the CDC to request that the, um, the Y scales are implemented by the CDC and the National Health and Nutrition Survey that we have here in the United States so, and Haines. And we can't measure, or we can't manage what we can't measure. Sure. And you could say, uh, what, uh, I've heard a DC staffer say, like, our data on water in the US is like a D minus. Like, we need a better sense of what people are, are drinking, not drinking, using, mm -hmm. not using. And so anyone who is in charge of measurement, I implore you, <laughs> take three minutes. <laughs> To, to measure water, it will, it's highly predictive of many, many outcomes, including food security and, and a lot of health outcomes that we, we all agree are important. Yeah, absolutely. And so where do you hope, you know, to take these wise skills in the future? And I said, you're in 43 countries. Are you trying to get to every country? What, what is your, what's your, what are your goals for this? Absolutely getting to every country and it's not measurement for measurement's sake. I mean, all of these data will be open access so that they can be useful for policymakers as they decide, you know, where do we want to prioritize and, and, you know, who are our most vulnerable populations. And there's also discussion of the wide scales being a sustainable development goal indicator in the, well, in the post 2030 agenda. I mean, we talk a lot about not leaving anyone behind mm -hmm. with these indicators. But if we're not measuring at the level of the household, let alone the level of the individual, we don't know which households or individuals are being left behind. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for the fact that these data can generate gender disaggregated indicators of, of problems with water insecurity. So my ultimate evil plan <laughs> is to have this, I mean, it's a huge goal, but you know, yeah. if you don't make a big goal, you don't make no small plans. 
Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm hopeful that um, this will be these scales will be recognized as really valuable for tracking progress towards global water security, and that would be by being encapsulated in an SDG indicator. Awesome. Well, those were all of my questions for you. I know we could talk about this for hours, but I don't want to take too much of your time. So is there anything you want to add that we haven't touched on? Um, I would just encourage uh, your listeners to look at our website. So it's www.hwise.org, Household Water and Security Experiences, um, for um, as a valuable resource for understanding how, how the scale works. We, it's translated into dozens and dozens of languages already. And there's an email there that you can reach out to me if you have any questions about its implementation. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all about the Y scales with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for your interest. I can't think of a more important topic than increasing water security for the world. <laughs> we agree. Well, thank you so much and um, have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Katie. Thanks so much for that interview, Sarah. I really appreciated you taking the time and talking with me about the Y scales and water scarcity. I learned so much and I know that our audience will too. Um, before we close out for the day, we do have a little housekeeping. So Bob, why don't you tell us what's going on with WWD? Yeah, well, I will start first by bringing it to the your interview subject, which is water scarcity. Last month, we published, I think, about five or six articles on Water and Waste Digest alone on water scarcity. So be sure to visit our website, and you can find all of them there. I also had them included in our latest newsletter. So if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please sign up on our website so you can get it straight to your inbox. And then I'd also like to plug our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest video interviews from experts across the industry. Last last week we had a, an interview on utilities finding ways to take legal recourse against PFAS polluters. This week we're talking about the PFAS incineration stop for the D Department of Defense and we got a lot more on the way too so make sure to go to bit.ly slash YouTube WWD to subscribe today. And Stormwater Solutions is now accepting nominations for our 2022 top projects. Nominations are open until September 5th. You can go ahead and submit your unique and challenging projects today at www.estormwater.com nominations. With that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.